This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, and I'm joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, January 5th, 2023, and we have so much to catch up on from the holiday break. As Matt pointed out to me yesterday, the last time we did a podcast, we talked about how well Carlos Correa was going to fit in with the Giants. Then what happened? Matt, there's a lot of news I want to get to. Can we start with the biggest news of the day? Eric Hosmer signed with the Cubs. I know it's what everybody wants to get to. No, nothing for that one. All right, we're going to talk about Rafael Devers' big extension. We're going to talk about the very interesting trade that happened between the Diamondbacks and the Blue Jays. We're going to talk about the impact of the shift and if there's any good free agents left, what the Marlins are doing or can do. And we're going to finish off by looking into the 2023 war projections for Fangraphs because it's a really interesting team to me at least that's like very near the top okay matt yesterday um we kind of were talking about like hey what should we talk about on the podcast and i think the first thing we said was we should probably at least mention that carlos correa still has not officially signed with the mets and i know we were like well what if it happens what if it gets stale and then i was like well what if it doesn't happen for two more weeks we are now two weeks and two days since it was announced he was going to sign with the mets in the middle of the night and it still hasn't happened yet and not only that, there's been like no news whatsoever other than, you know, questions about the physical or whatever. And I think what I want to know is as a non, like as an impartial observer, I don't really have a dog in the fight here. I'm not a Mets fan or anything. It's like weird right now, but I feel like there's a certain amount of time where it stops being weird and it starts being funny. And how close are we to that? Kind of been funny the whole time. You know? <laughs> <Okay. I> mean, <laughs> when it's like the, oh, he's not signing with the Giants because there was a, you know, difference of opinion on the physical. And then you know, the Mets swoop in and their owner goes on record talking about it. And then it's like, oh, two days later, the Mets might not like something in the physical. That was all kind of funny. Um, I mean, I think from the Mets perspective, I mean— I don't want to call it house money because it's whatever it's going to be a lot of money, how much very much it is. But like, there was no expectation they were going to sign Correa. They kind of had an off season that was seemed that was deemed reasonable. They brought in Verlander. They they brought back Nimmo and Edwin Diaz, and you know they, it was unclear. I mean, they won 101 games last year, so they probably are unlikely to win 101 games again without Correa. But they still have a lot of room to go down and still make the playoffs pretty comfortably. I think. If they do add Correa, it, it's like, okay. I think without Correa, the Braves are the, still a favorite at the NL East. With Correa, I think it changes the conversation um, and maybe makes the Mets the favorite, but that we'll kind of wait and see about that. But for now, I, I kind of feel like the Mets are in a good position here because there's not really any other suitors at this point, and they don't, quote-unquote, need him. So I think there's probably a way for them to kind of figure out this this deal and make everyone happy. What if the Braves just signed Correa to play shortstop? Did anybody think about that? <laughs> That would be funny. That would be funny. Yeah, there, there's precedent for this. I was reading uh, Anthony DiComo had written about this, you know, the whole thing at Mets.com. And uh, apparently this has happened twice in Scott Boris's history, at least twice. Uh, in 2004, he signed Yvonne Rodriguez with the Tigers for four years and $40 million, And they included language that protected the team against any back injuries. So it's based on if he spent, you know, a certain number of days on the injured list, specifically because of the back issue, then Detroit could void the contract or, or you know, lower a salary. And then J.D. Martinez did the same thing with the Red Sox. Five years and 110 million, and there were issues with his foot. He'd had a ligament sprain, and if he missed any time due to that, then the Red Sox would get some relief. And as it turned out, neither of those things ever happened. Both of those guys were healthy; they were productive. Um, Martinez had, I believe, two opt-outs that he ended up not even choosing to take. So it just—it feels to me like there is a middle ground here somewhere that has to be taken because I feel like both sides are under massive pressure. Like as you alluded to, uh, some of Steve Cohen's comments, I think would be very difficult to walk back right now. But also if you're Carlos Correa, you don't want to go back out there knowing that two teams have had a problem with you and that the Mets are no longer an option because like nobody spends like the Mets. So I think it'll get sorted out. I'm not sure it'll get sorted out by the next time we podcast. So that's the thing. We may be talking about this forever. 
There was big news yesterday. Raphael Devers signed 11 years, $331 million. The timing of this was funny to me because uh, earlier in the day, we had been talking about Devers and I said, they should trade him. Trade him right now. They know what it's going to cost. If they're not going to sign him, just trade him. And then like three hours later, Carlos Baerga, of all people, broke the news that Devers would sign. Um, this is a big one, I think, for Red Sox fans, not just because Devers is a very good player, but because their offseason has been like massively disappointing. Obviously, Bogart's left, coming on the heels of Mookie Betts leaving. Uh, the other day, there was the outdoor hockey game at Fenway where Red Sox owner John Henry showed up and the fans were chanting, sign Raffi, sign Raffi. I don't think that's what made this happen, but it's pretty clear what fans wanted to happen. And I think it's it's hard for people to kind of dissect what this one means without also saying, but you didn't sign Betts and Bogarts. I feel like that's a little unfair, right? I, I think there were questions about whether Betts wanted to sign long-term. I don't... The, the issue with Bogarts was they didn't sign him a year ago. The issue was not that they didn't match the Padres contract. To be honest, I think this Devers deal is better than the Bogarts deal because I think Devers is a better hitter and he's four years younger. Like that That's a big deal to me. Is he a shortstop? No. Uh, but I do think Devers is in some sense maybe underrated by people. Does that make sense? How, like, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe a little bit. Do you, I mean, do you really think he's, quote unquote, underrated? I mean, if you look at the last four years, right, tied for 15th and wins above replacement. He's been a similar hitter to Ronald Acuna, Trey Turner, and Carlos Correa. Uh, he only just turned 26. Like, he's still young. I get that he's not a great third baseman or whatever. Uh, there, there was an interesting note from Mike Bauman at Fangrass. He said, Devers is the first player in Major League history with a contract worth $300 million who has never had a top 10 MVP finish. And that includes Garrett Cole. And a lot of people don't even want to vote for pitchers for MVP. So I thought that was interesting. Maybe we're still waiting on the Devers breakout season that hasn't come yet. But he's still so young. Like, I, I feel like that could happen. I, I guess maybe I should put it a different way. Were you surprised by the dollar figure for a guy who has not attained such heights as some of the other 300 million? I, this was actually kind of exactly what I would have expected. And I think that, like, given, I think the his him being deceptively young, um, you know, I think this this should be something that works out quite well for the, both player and team. Um, it, you know, the weird, he's still, quote-unquote, entering his theoretical prime, although, as our colleague Andrew Simon pointed out yesterday, if you go to Baseball Reference <laughs> and look at his most similar similar batters through age 25, the top four is Eric Chavez, Ryan Zimmerman, Bob Horner, and David Wright, all guys who basically were, like, on Hall of Fame tracks and had, like, horrible, like, Various like back injury problems that derailed their careers way too way too early. It feels kind of flukish. It feels kind of a coincidence. So I'm not going to read too much into that. But it's kind of as he as he pointed out, it was kind of like, oh wow, that's kind of a uh, it's not a great list in terms of uh, players aging aging gracefully. To be clear, number five is Scott Rowland, and you know he might be getting to the Hall of Fame this year. So you know. Should mention that as well. You know what this does? This has nothing to do with the Red Sox, but the fact that Devers will not be reaching free agency next year. Have you noticed that next year's free agent hitters class looks absolutely dreadful? You're going to have Otani, sure. Uh, Machado will probably opt out, given the way that the industry has gone. And then it's like, uh, Reese Hoskins? Uh, Matt Chapman, maybe? I don't know if Conforto has a good year and opts out. I, I think people are going to be surprised at how different next year's class looks compared to this year's because so many of those guys have signed long-term contracts uh, over the last couple of years. So I think that's that's part of the reason why this makes so much sense for them, not just because of the PR hit, but there's just no, you're, you can't bank on getting Otani. Like I keep hearing that about the Dodgers, for example. Oh, they're pulling back a little bit this year because they want Otani. Well, that's great. But like the Yankees are going to want Otani and the Mets are going to want Otani. And there is only one Otani to go around. You can't count on these guys being there. Do you think, uh, does this change your opinion of the Red Sox winter at all? It's been a very unpopular one, I think, for a lot of reasons. They have made some interesting, you know, veteran additions like Justin Turner and Chris Martin and Kenley Jansen, and they signed Masataka Yoshida from, from Japan. It hasn't been like a zero of a winner, but has it changed the way you view this team? Devers was going to be on the team anyway, right? So that doesn't really change the outlook for this season. I just think it's, they're they're just in a tough spot because of that division, right? It's just, I mean, we, I think that they've, in my mind they've been helped a little bit by the fact that how little the Orioles have done. I thought, expect them to be a lot more active, um, and I thought there was a real chance that the, the Red Sox could enter this year as like the clear, you know, fifth fifth best team in that division. I'm actually not sure that's the case. And you're right. I think it, some of the sort of minor moves around the edges maybe 
better than they're being given credit for. I saw one person compare it to like, you know, in 2013, the Red Sox went out and instead of signing one big free agent, they went out and signed Shane Victorino and Johnny Gomes and a couple other sort of like these mid-level free agents whose names I'm forgetting. And those guys ended up being key pieces on a team that won the World Series. So, you know, I'm not the core of this team isn't as strong as that team was, but I think that there's you could you can kind of squint and see some of that here, where it's like, okay, Justin Turner could still hit. Maybe I'm wrong about Kenley Jansen; he'll be fine with the pitch clock and all that stuff. So, they're a fringe wild card contender in my mind. Yeah, my my biggest concern is that the ace of their staff might be Nick Pavetta, just because I don't trust Chris Sale. Obviously, if he's available, he's very good. Um, you know. James Paxton, Corey Kluber, like the ghosts of 2018 are strong here. Uh, There's one other thing I wanted to mention about the Red Sox. Do you remember last summer when they had the world's most confounding trade deadline where they were both in and out, like everybody on the planet could tell they were not making the playoffs. And so they traded away Christian Vasquez, which made sense. But then they didn't trade away J.D. Martinez or Evaldi. And then they acquired Eric Hosmer and Tommy Pham and ended up just over the luxury tax deadline, uh, not deadline, but limit. And then what happened was uh, because, you know, they had two qualifying offer free agents. If they'd gotten under the luxury tax, they would have gotten picks 70 and 71 in the draft next year. But because they didn't, now they're at 133 and 134. And they also miss out on an extra $1 million in bonus pool money. And that whole thing was confusing at the time. And now it looks even worse. Like that's that's the part I don't get about the whole strategy here. I still don't know what to make of this team. That just sounds like really poor planning. I yeah. mean, you think of when you think of all the reasons you you hire someone like High and Bloom from the Rays. It's like to you think of that like, oh, we are going to work the rules like everything we can in terms of rosters, transactions. We're going to do every little thing we can do to kind of like you know work it in our favor and like just making almost like a clerical mistake that costs you not just the sixty. 50 draft fix pots, but like the money that comes with it and the bonus pool money is 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 significant. That's a significant significant drop off. There is also a really interesting trade over the holidays, and this is my favorite kind of trade because I feel like it doesn't happen that much anymore. This is like a good solid baseball trade. Right, this was two teams doing this for baseball reasons and not because we're trying to move salary or whatever. Uh, Arizona and Toronto hooked up on a trade that the fit had seemed so obvious for like two months that it actually happened and I couldn't believe it. So Toronto receives Dalton Varsho, who is a catcher slash outfielder, and Arizona receives uh, Lourdes Gurriel, outfielder, and more importantly, catching prospect Gabriel Moreno. And this one is really kind of interesting because let's start with Toronto. So they had traded away Teoscar Hernandez to Seattle. They have signed Kevin Kiermeyer, who's obviously one healthy, uh, extremely good defensive outfielder. They'll probably play George Springer and right. And now you have Varsho. And what they were doing was they were dealing from a position of strength at catcher because Alejandro Kirk is one of the best catchers in baseball now. Danny Jansen has been pretty good. And what they were concerned about, as far as what I was reading, is if you trade you know, Jansen or if you trade Kirk, and somebody gets hurt, all of a sudden, you know, now you are starting basically a rookie with no backup. And so by finding a guy who can actually catch while being an elite defensive outfielder is a pretty nice trick to me. Did it cost Gabriel Moreno? Yes. He's a really good prospect. He He's like a ground ball hitter or a line drive hitter. I am worried he's ever going to have enough pop in his bat to be a starter or a star kind of guy, not a starter. But if you're Arizona's point of view, you knew you had too many outfielders. You knew you were going to trade one of them to get a consensus top 10 prospect and a half decent veteran outfielder. Like that's, that's not that bad. I, I like it for both sides, I think, but I feel like you disagree. I understand why Varsho, like what Varsho is a perfect sort of profile fit for the Blue Jays, right? They need, they need a left-handed bat, right? They're, they're, they're like, they are super righty heavy and having a left-handed bat really helps balance out their lineup. Obviously a fantastic um, defensive outfielder, although they've already signed Kevin Kiermeyer to play center. So I guess Varsho will play left, but then again, Kiermeyer gets hurt a lot too, so you have Varsho can slide over to center field, and that's pretty valuable. The catching thing too, I'm very curious to see how much Varsho ever catches again, um, but I guess having a guy available who's like a, a clear cut above what you would consider your emergency catcher is a very nice a very nice thing to have. Even if you don't plan to ever use him, you know that he, you know that he's there and can do it reasonably reasonably well. I just think there's a lot of stuff in his batted ball profile that's just kind of weird and not great. Like he actually had a 298 expected weight on base last year, which is not good. His hard hit rate down was down from the year before, um 25th percentile, and his walk his walk rate has dropped each each of his years in the majors and he actually he doesn't he does not 
hit fastballs well at all. His 316 expected weight on base against fastballs was 140th out of 164 players with 250 plate appearances. And hitting fastballs is kind of like the thing you need to do. So I'm not writing him off because he's had, he's had an interesting career. This is his third year, right? It's like he seems to be a slightly different version of himself every year. I just think that, like, when you—I mean, Gabriel Moreno was the number seven prospect in baseball last preseason and midseason on MLB Pipeline. I— Let's just assume that he's a consensus, like, conservatively top 15 prospect in baseball. Like, I feel like usually when you trade that guy, you get kind of more of a star. And I'm just not sure they really—and they also trade a depth piece as well in Guriel to do it. So it just feels like, I want to say, kind of a lot for the Blue Jays to give up for Varsho. Can I give you an incredibly cherry-picked, arbitrary starting point leaderboard? You know me. I you're you're you're. I love cherry-picked leaderboard. Yes. You're the guy who's like very you know by the book, like you know no. really scientific process, all that. Most cherry-picked leaderboards. Most home runs in baseball starting August twenty fourth, the end of last season. Mike Trout number one, Aaron Judge number two, Kyle Schwarber and Anthony Santander number three, Dalton Varsho number four. He had eleven home runs. That was tied, or that was fifth most in baseball. And obviously, I don't look at that and say, okay, he's on pace for 40 home runs or next year. But really interesting Twitter thread by my friend Chris Black, who's a producer for Sports Night in Canada, who kind of went through this whole thing about how did this happen? Uh, there are pretty clear mechanical changes, like he started his leg kick sooner. Uh, his approach changed. He was a lot more aggressive on non-fastballs. And so I don't disagree with anything you say. I just think last year was his first full season in the big leagues. And he made changes and he improved. And even if he's just a good outfielder, not like an elite outfielder, if he's a slightly better bat than we just saw with the ability to play catcher, I think for a Blue Jays team that's really a win-now team, uh, he helps them a lot more this year and probably next year than Marino would because, like, you know, they still have Kirk. They, they still have Jansen. I don't think you're wrong about could they have gotten more than Varsho? Uh, possibly so. But I, I think Varsho is an underrated player. I think it's a fantastic fit there. I think I think it will help both teams. I think Arizona has a half-decent shot to finish third in the West. We'll get to the Giants in a minute. But I'm, I'm pretty into what Arizona's doing. Arizona's very interesting. The last thing I want to say about this trade is I think, you know, you talk about how it's like this baseball trade that we rarely see anymore. And I know people hate when—I know a lot of people hate when you hear like, oh— we can't trade in our division. We can't trade in our division. I think the only reason a trade like this happens is because it's like two two teams that are like could not be less connected. Like, <laughs> like AL East, NL West. Like, there's no way this comes back to haunt you in any way that's going to feel. So, like, I think there's real truth to this idea that the t- when push comes to shove, front offices are nervous about making trades with certain teams that may like kind of like haunt them. The only way this trade happens is this like they, 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 like I can't think of two teams that are less connected than the D-backs, and there's no history, no nothing between the two of them. So you're on the record now as saying that the World Series in the next three or four years will not be Arizona and Toronto. That's a that's a scorchingly hot take on your part. I I think you're probably right. I wanted to talk about the Giants for a minute. Um, obviously, they kind of had a disastrous offseason of their own. They didn't get Aaron Judge. They probably didn't get Carlos Correa, but at this point, who could really tell? And what they've done is they, instead of getting stars, they desperately needed stars, but they failed to do that. So what they've done is they, they've moved the money around and they've actually signed like six or seven really interesting veterans. Maybe. So they signed Ross Stripling, which I like. They signed Sean Manaya, which is fine. Taylor Rogers is a good reliever. Uh, Jock Peterson accepted the qualifying offer, so he's returning. Mitch Hanniger, I think, is a pretty decent rebound bet. Michael Conforto would be a good rebound bet, except his deal is not official yet either which is kind of like a, a funny postscript to the whole carlos gray thing isn't official that's been going on for like two weeks and we know he's got injury histories and oh yeah his agent scott boris so like put a pin in that assume that that will actually happen i don't i don't hate what they've done in the sense that i don't fault them for missing out on judge right it w- wasn't it reported they had an offer as big or more than the yankees had i think like they did everything they could for that I don't necessarily fault them for what happened with Correa, just in the sense that the Mets have the same problem and they offered him less money. So, you know, they, I don't want to say they're right because we don't know what will happen with Correa's health, but it doesn't seem unreasonable that they had concerns here. And failing to get one of those two, the stars were otherwise gone. Like, I guess they could have gotten Trey Turner aggressively earlier in the offseason, but you probably weren't going to get Judge and Turner and they wanted to get Judge. So I think some of it was maybe poor planning on their part. I also think sometimes these things just happen and if you want to say okay well we can't get stars we're going to add depth it's not necessarily a a bad you know rebound kind of way to go about this 
I don't think anything I've said will satisfy Giants fans. That's probably fair to say. No, and I think your point before about next year's Frisian class being so weak is just another glaring because there's been this idea that, oh, one of these years the Giants are going to bring in a, some of these stars via free agency. And it's like, well, this year was a pretty deep free agent class, as it turned out, as was last year. There's not much to choose from next year. So this idea that they're going to go get one, I guess, you know, all in on Otani, but Otani's made it clear he wants to go play for a winning team. So I'm not sure the Giants would necessarily qualify given their current roster no you can definitely wait for the guy you want and he'll be there and that's why bryce harper mookie betts and john carlos Stanton are all wearing black and orange this year <laughs> that's definitely the way it works the final big signing that happened uh, since the last time we spoke this one was really shocking to me uh andrew Benatendi got five years and 75 million from the white Sox. in the context of this year's market 75 million is not that much and five years isn't really considering guys are getting 11 12 13 year deals but five years for Andrew Benatendi stood out to me just because, I don't know, I've I, I've never been a particularly huge fan of his game. Um, he, you know, he's good with Boston early on. His speed has dropped, like, consistently for reasons I don't quite understand. He doesn't hit for much power anymore. And I don't mind him in that lineup. Like, he's he's better than Eli Jimenez in left field, for sure. Like, they'll have a better defense. They lost to Brea, which is not great for their lineup. But you get Vaughn out of left and you put him in first, that's good. You get Jimenez out of left and you put him in DH, that's good. I'm not saying Benatendi is not, like, a solid average player. I think what I'm saying is, I don't think they needed a solid average player. They needed someone a little bigger and a little louder, uh, because that, it's it's been a really disappointing last two years for the White Sox. I'm with you. Like, five years, it just feels like there's a lot of guys on the on the market this year that are pretty comparable. I mean, he's got a career OPS plus of 109, and he's never even really put together consecutive great years. I mean, even last year, his OPS plus was 120, but then when he got to the Yankees, he was terrible, and then he got hurt. So it feels a little uninspiring. The best thing about it is that it makes their lineup make more sense because it gets, Andrew, as you said, it gets Andrew Vaughn to first base and Eloy Jimenez to DH. And, but there's still that roster still feels... Like it's missing some things. And like the second baseman. <laughs> yes. And even right field, right? There, is Gavin Sheets the right fielder right now? Like, it's not like I'm that excited about Gavin Sheets is right in right field. Uh, so. Oscar Colas, maybe. What will be interesting, I think, um, the big change they do have is they've obviously turned around the coaching staff entirely, right? They've gone from the oldest school manager that you can possibly think of who would, you know, do weird things like issue intentional walks on one and two counts um, to, you know, completely new coaching staff. And there was a real interesting article in The Athletic a week or two ago where the new hitting coaches, and I cannot remember the hitting coach's name, so I apologize, uh, was quoted as saying, we're not up there trying to hit singles, <laughs> which is like, could that be more of a diametrically opposed approach than they had before? And I'm, I'm really interested to see if the same guys uh, produced differently just because of a different approach. That That is something I'm watching for with this team. We're going to take a break and we will come back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll get into our three batter minimum and talk about the impacts of the shift bang. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers going to move into our three batter minimum where we talk about three interesting topics of the week. Something that we've been focusing on a lot lately is what's going to happen in 2023 with the new rule changes, specifically the ban on shifting or the positioning ban, however you want to say it. Uh, it's it's There's a couple different rules to it, but the biggest point here is you cannot have three fielders on one side of the infield like you've had in the past. The extreme infield overshift is no more 
you got to have two infielders on each side of second base. So that's going to be a big deal for a lot of lefty hitters. And everybody wants to know who's going to be impacted. I feel like there's a lot of people who think some of the lefty hitters like Anthony Rizzo are going to gain like, I don't know, 40 points in batting average back. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago in regards to Corey Seager. But basically what we did with the help of Tom Tango, who's obviously our, our chief data analyst over here, uh, we tried to estimate just based on uh, stack cast metrics like exit velocity and launch angle, horizontal shift angle, all this, who you know lost the most hits last year that may have gained been gained back if there was a more traditional infield defense. And by traditional, I don't even mean regular. We know that there will be positioning within that. You don't have to stand at the four infield spots. And we came up with some interesting names. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it was surprising to anybody when I said, okay, Corey Seager lost the most hits, potentially. The, Kyle Schwarber lost the second most, potentially. That that makes a ton of sense. And um, Carlos Santana, because those are exactly the guys you would think of, right? These lefty, slowish guys who pull the ball a lot. And then I was like, well, let's go a little bit deeper than that. You know who didn't show up on my list that I think people were shocked about? Matt Olson, Anthony Rizzo, Max Kepler. I, I'm not sure they're going to gain much back at all. And we'll get into why in a second, but I, I want to express that. I think the two hardest things about all of this, number one, batting average on balls in play, like do balls find gloves or not? It's kind of noisy from year to year to begin with. You can't just assume that if a guy's BABIP goes up 20 points next year, it's because of the shift ban. It could be dumb luck. It could be he's healthier. It could be he's on a new team with new hitting coaches. It could be a million different reasons. I know people will just say, well, that's the effect of the shift ban. That's that's not really true. The second thing is, you know, we're trying to model batted balls from 2022 against potential new defensive alignments from 2023. We can't just assume that every single guy will go up there with the same approach. I think some guys will. I think some guys will say, I truly do not care. I'm going to go hit the ball as hard as I can. I don't care where you're standing. But there's going to be some guys, like say like Jeff McNeil, who's going to go up there and say, oh, look at that. I've got more space at this spot. I'm going to try to put the ball through there. Like, I really think it's important to remember it's not a one-size-fits-all thing for every lefty hitter because there's so many different kinds of lefty hitters. And then I know he said two things, but here's the third thing. When you're wondering, hey, did a guy improve against the shift? The real question to ask is, how do you judge improvement? Is it batting average or is it production? Because there's some guys that are like, I don't, I don't want the singles. Like if I'm Anthony Rizzo and I'm at home, do I care about the single up the middle? Or am I trying to bomb a ball into the short porch? Like the the whole thing is just like a fascinating thought experiment for me. The the, the fourth thing actually yes. is also, which I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around, is a lot of the balls hitting the shift would be outs anyway. Oh God! Yes, so it's like absolutely. It's not, every, not every ground ball to the right side of the infield is scooped up because of the shift. A lot of them are just routine ground balls to second base, just like they would have been in 1995. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I found so many video examples of broadcasters being like, "Ah, there's a ball hitting the shift," and it's like it just went through where the second baseman would be anyway. The shift might have made that harder because he's further away. So I, I think that's a great point. Um, I've said. A thousand times on our podcast in the past, I've been against the idea of a positioning ban for a lot of reasons I won't repeat, but I've I'd never liked it. I still don't really love it. But the more I think about this, just I'm the more interested in like the game theory of it. How will guys uh, respond to this? You know, like what what will players do? Because like I said, some guys are going to be like, great, more space, this rules. And some guys are going to say, I just, I don't care. This doesn't matter to me. And I think that's going to be the most fascinating outcome is seeing what strategy different guys take. So is there, is there a guy you're looking for maybe the most next year is to see how this works for them? I think of the, I mean, you wrote a couple of pieces about this the last couple of days, one of which was the, the players who will be most helped by the shift. And then the other one was the guys who will surprisingly maybe not be helped by this by this rule change. And the one that jumped out to me that you wrote about most um, was Max Kepler, just because he literally had the lowest betting average on balls in play what in since the wild in the wild card era. Is that is that right? Uh, um, I think tied with uh, I can't remember who, Rod Barajas maybe, but yes. <laughs> yes, he had a he had a two forty eight betting average on balls in play. So it's easy to just say like, oh well, he's gonna benefit he's gonna benefit as much as anyone. And then you kind of you know Peeled away the layers of the onion there, and then you're like, actually, you know, it turns out he just makes really weak contact. He pops the ball up a lot, and it's a lot, lot of weak grounder to the right side. So, like, the shift apparently has nothing to do with it. So, but I also think he's exactly the kind of player. I mean, he's a decent player. Max Kepler's had some nice seasons where maybe just the the mental the mental aspect of it will unlock something that allows him to sort of just be like, hey, I don't even have to worry. Like, maybe part of the reason he hits these weak 
these weak ground balls and these pop-ups is because he is subconsciously trying to make adjustments because of the shift, and it's hard to know what the answer is. Yeah, and it's going to be even harder because he is a pretty popular trade candidate, especially since the Twins went out and signed Joey Gallo. They have a ton of lefty outfielders. Everybody thinks Kepler is going to get traded. So let's say he does. Let's say he gets traded to, I don't know, the Astros, the Rangers. I'm making teams up now. New hitting coach, new ballpark, new approach. All of a sudden, let's say he hits better. Is that because of the shift or is that because of all this other stuff? Like, that's going to be really difficult to try to figure out. I, the other one I was thinking about, will there be guys who lose hits because of this? Jeff McNeil and Freddie Freeman, I think, are two of the best like you know, bat control guys I can think of. Like Freeman's a little more powerful than McNeil, sure. But if you look at what McNeil did against the shift last year, he was actually way better with the shift on. To the point that I found a couple of clips where the Mets broadcasters, he, you know, he would go opposite field through the open shortstop hole and like Gary, Keith and Ron would just laugh. They're like, why are you shifting Jeff McNeil? And they weren't wrong. He had a 416 bab up against the shift last year and only, only with air quotes here, 323 against regular defenses. And so if you look at that, it's kind of hard for me to say, oh yeah, he'll get better without the shift. Well, he's great against the shift. This is kind of the other thought experiment too. Like obviously he's a guy I think will change his approach, but I sort of wonder, will he benefit more because if he looks to the right side, yeah, he won't have three fielders there as he did last year, or will it hurt because when he looks to the left side, he'll have two fielders there instead of one. Like how many of those real easy rolled ground balls through the left side are no longer available to him last year. And so I'm not comfortable saying, oh, this is going to cost him a bunch of hits, even though that's what the data says. But I do think it's interesting to say, like, this this might not be good for a guy like that. You know, a guy who's so good at just placing the ball through these massive spots on the left side. And again, even if I'm right, it could just be dumb luck. It could just be what's going to happen anyway, because batted ball stuff is so, uh, I don't want to say random. Obviously, the, the hitter has a lot to do with it. But, you know, it's not based entirely on skill. Some of it is luck and positioning. Some of it is based on the fielder. The team could be shifted perfectly and the fielder could screw up the play. And maybe that's a hit. We could talk for this for like 10 hours, um, but it's 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 the rule change that's the most interesting to me just because there's so many different ways to approach it and it's not going to be as simple as people think it's going to be. Here is our second topic. Are there any good free agents left? For the purposes of this conversation, Carlos Concrea and Michael Conforto have actually signed. I think we had talked about this a couple weeks ago, saying how satisfying of a pace this offseason had gone, right? Like a slowish November, everybody gets a chance to catch their breath, goes nuts around the uh, winter meetings and into the, the, the holiday season. Pretty quiet holiday season, right? And now here we are in January, and we haven't had any situations like, oh, gosh, Bryce Harper is still out there. Who's he going to sign with? The best remaining free agent, according to Fangraphs, is Elvis Andrus, which, no disrespect to him, is not exactly a needle changer. The top 24 of their free agents based on projected war have signed. 32 of the top 33 have signed, uh, aside from Elvis Andrus. Here's the list. I'm not going to read the whole list, but the top five or six names, uh, as far as the Fangraphs projected uh, war goes, Elvis Andrus, Michael Waka, Jose Iglesias, Jerkson Profar, Brian Anderson, Trey Mancini, those are guys, right? Like, it's not hard for me to see one of those guys being on a championship team and, you know, playing a useful role, but there's no one left that you are, let's say, putting on your ticket packages or selling jerseys of, you know, like there's, there are no names, there are guys. That's the distinction I'll make. Yeah, I think you look at this list of remaining free agents, and there's going to be a few of them who end up being impact players on good teams. It's just like, it's, it feels random. Like these guys, there's always these like second or third tier free agents who end up panning out and being really good role players uh, for good for, for playoff teams. But it's just hard to know. They're all kind of on the wrong side of 30. They're all, you know, don't, have, don't necessarily have a standout tool, just kind of like average across the board players. Um, so there's no one you can get that excited about. Although the, on MLB.com, we did like a, a draft. We asked a few of our folks, like, sort of like, who do you think is the most interesting free agent left? And it was an interesting. It was an interesting mix of names, right? You were you were involved, and you picked Andrew McCutcheon. Why did you Why did you say McCutcheon? Because I love Andrew McCutcheon. I <laughs> I do. I, I want I want to see him in baseball. I want to see him succeed. I know it's been a very long time since he was the MVP for Pittsburgh. I mean, long enough ago that Pittsburgh was making the playoffs. But you know, you look at what he's done. He still hits lefties really well. You, you, no one's signing him to be an everyday player, right? Crushes lefties. 
And I kind of expected that after his knee injury a couple years ago and at his age, he wouldn't be that fast. And then I looked at the StatCast numbers. You know, he's 90th percentile in speed, right? So he, he seems to me like the kind of guy, you know, the veteran guy who's been around, who's still got something to offer in the right situation where you add him as, you know, the, the second best guy off the bench for a contender. Like, I think that could be a cool story. He, he's a guy who, if you need him to start for two weeks in a row in left field, he could probably do that. I know like aging veteran part-time DH isn't the sexiest way to describe anybody, but it's not hard for me to see him being on a team and like coming up in a big spot in the postseason. Like that's that's a cool story. Yeah, and another player who fits, I think, a similar profile who was mentioned who is who is selected, quote unquote, in this draft was is Adam Duvall. Um, he's another guy who I think I could see in a similar type of role that McCutcheon has, being a pretty valuable player for a contending team. The one name that really jumped out to me um, on this list is sort of like the most sneaky Upside guy that I hadn't really thought about and admittedly has had a lot of injury issues, so I'm not sure what to make of him, is Alex Reyes. Um, because, like, when he has pitched, especially last in 2021 when he pitched, he was nasty. And he's still in his 20s, and I'm like, oh, huh, I had not thought about Alex Reyes. I feel like if you're a team out there that's desperate for relief help— I'd roll the dice on that guy. Like there's there's some real there's some real upside there. You know, you know, you don't want to rely on him for 60 innings, but man, like when he pitches, he should be pretty good. Here's how thin things are right now. So Johnny Cueto is is still a free agent. He had a, a surprising rebound season for the White Sox last year. There's reportedly a bidding war over his services between the Reds, the Marlins, and the Padres. Now, I don't know Johnny Cueto the person at all. But I know if I was in his shoes and I had a choice between those three teams, I will have signed with San Diego yesterday. (laughs) That's going to be a really good team, like a really fun group of guys. Obviously, I don't know. Maybe he's holding out for multiple years. Uh, But it's I think it says a lot about 37 year old Johnny Cueto. There are multiple teams in on him. The other name I was thinking that I, I almost went with instead of McCutcheon was Matt Moore, who you know, former top prospect a million years ago has been hurt a bunch of times. He's now a reliever, started throwing his curveball like almost as much as his fastball last year, and he changed the grip, so he's got a little more movement on it. I think he's a sneaky good left-handed reliever type, but again, like nobody here who's gonna, I think, completely like break the the standings. Our third topic, we don't talk about the Marlins that much, but I want to talk about the Marlins because everybody expected that they would come into this offseason and they would add something to a really dreadful offense. Last year, 586 runs scored was the third weakest in baseball. Only Oakland and Detroit uh, were weaker than that. And there's a lot of talk about how this would be the winter they would trade pitching for offense. I don't actually know if that's as good idea, a good an idea as it sounds, and I want to explain why. So all they've done this winter so far is to uh, cut loose Brian Anderson, who had been a third base outfielder for them for a bunch of years, and to give a two-year deal uh, to Gene Segura, which is fine, although he's going to play third base, which is kind of weird. The Miami Herald had a really interesting story the other day where they looked at all of their we-tried-just-missed attempts, right? They tried for Jose Abreu, but they offered him a year less than Houston did. They tried for Justin Turner, but they offered him a year less than Boston did. They apparently actually offered Brandon Drury a little bit more than the Angels did, but he went to the Angels anyway, uh, in part because I think he's got a history with Phil Nevin and the Angels are probably more likely to contend. And now the only other free agent that they're pursuing uh, is Johnny Cueto, as we mentioned before. So they haven't done much. Like They've made some efforts and failed, and that's fine. Um, But everybody seems to think, okay, well, we're going to trade pitching for hitting. And I was looking at their death chart recently, and the thought occurred to me, can you can you even do that, right? I mean, you're not... Well, let's start with this. Matt, you can't trade Sandy Alcantara, right? Like, if you're trying to contend at no. any point in the next five years? No. No. No, absolutely not. Here's what's behind him. I'm just looking at the Fangraph step chart now. Pablo Lopez, Jesus Luzardo, Edward Cabrera, Trevor Rogers, Braxton Garrett, Yuri Perez, Sixto Sanchez, Brian Hoeing. That is a bunch of interesting names, but aside from Sandy, I don't think I trust a single one of them to give you 180 innings next year. Maybe I'm a little low on Pablo Lopez because um, he has been very good, but uh, he missed half of 2021 with a shoulder strain and he had nearly a five ERA at the end of last year. And I, I like him, but he's what a number four starter on a real playoff team. Is that right? I mean, he pretty consistently is 
awesome for April and May and then slowly, like, yeah. gets worse as the, over the course of the season. He's been a player every year at, at the trade deadline. I'm like, this is the time to trade him because he's pitching well, and it, it's, it's pretty consistent in his career. So until he can kind of show that he can maintain his stuff over the course of a season, I'm still pretty skeptical of him as, a, as like, a true number two or even number three number three starter. I mean, of any team, if they could, and I'm not even sure they can, they are the team that should be trying to put together a package for Brian Reynolds, in my opinion. I'm just not sure it's there. I'm not sure it's there. Like, it's just like, they, they as you said, they don't really have the pitching. Are you going to like, you know, I'm not sure if the Pirates would want just like grab bag of like prospects, even if they're good prospects. I think they'd probably want a, a major league player if they're trading their best player. So I don't really know what they I mean, I guess maybe they should have offered Justin Turner a little more or made sure they got Jose Abreu to try and like spruce up that offense because I'm not really sure what they can do. I think the best thing you could say is that Avisel Garcia will almost certainly be better than he was last year because he was one of the worst hitters in baseball last year. So at least you'll probably get a little bit of like, you know, a, a regression to the mean, so to speak, from him. And even Jorge Soler, Jorge Soler has been up and down over his course of his career. Like, you know, if he ended up hitting like 40 home runs one of the years, it wouldn't shock me. He was about league average last year um, when all was said and done. So those are their two big free agent signings last year. They'll probably be better this year, but even that's not going to be enough to to raise this to being a, a contending team. And going into last year, it was like, oh, you could sort of see maybe there's a contending team here. And now I'm kind of like, eh, not really so sure about that. If they trade Lopez, which it seems to be the guy that they would. Are you comfortable with Jesus Lazardo as your number two starter? I will say this. He looked really good at times last year, like really good. But he missed two months with a forearm strain and he's got no track record. Like he's kind of lousy with Oakland. And again, he looked really good last year. You trust him to make 28 starts next year? It almost doesn't matter, mostly because I just don't think Pablo Lopez is going to bring back a difference maker. So it's sort of like, is it really making you like, what's the level caliber of hitter you're going to get for Pablo Lopez and I'm not really sure it's anyone that's going to move the needle for you. So I could see them doing it, and I'd be comfortable doing it if I was the Marlins. He's probably the best trade chip of the bunch. But, I, I mean, I'm sure other teams see what I see in terms of his, like, regression every year over the course of the season. It's not a secret. So I'm just not sure what the value is. So I, I hate to say that this is the resolution, but is the answer that the Marlins are stuck? They cannot do anything? I mean, it's tough. It's, it's really hard from the outside to be like, oh, they should have signed more free agents. Maybe some players don't want to go play there, although, of course, they could, you know, if they have to, maybe pay a little extra to get some of these guys, because they're not, it's not like they're going after, it's not like they were going after the Bogarts and Trey Turners of the world. They're going after Justin Turner and Jose Abreu. Presumably, given where their payroll is, they might have been able to pay a little bit more to sort of, to get them to reconsider. Not to mention the fact there have been times over the years when free agents have chosen to play in Miami. So it's not unheard of for that to happen. In other sports, you know, like in the NBA, it is a destination franchise. So it's not crazy to think that players would want to play there. Right now, I think they're a little bit stuck, unfortunately, because I think they have like one superstar player in Alcantara, a potential superstar player in Jazz Chisholm, and then like everything else is kind of like pretty underwhelming. And even like their top prospects, like J.D. Blade, it's like it's un- he's, he's been okay, you know, but number four pick in the draft, he's been okay. It doesn't look, it's unclear what, what the future holds there. And then Max Myers hurt, Trevor Rogers was disappointing. So it's kind of, it's, it's not a great situation. Yeah, there is absolutely nothing to be done about this right now. And it's not Kim Ng's fault because it's predates here. But a lot of it goes back to the trades that they made that winter where they got rid of Ozuna, Yelich, Stanton, JT Romuto, because three of those trades have led to very little, right? Like Stan, the whole point was not getting, not even to pay him. So fine, they didn't get any players back for that. The Yelich trade is a total disaster. They got nothing back for that. Romuto trade, like Jorge Alfaro was okay. Sixto Sanchez is never healthy. And then obviously the Ozuna trade is great because they got Sandy Alcatara <laughs> in that trade. They also got Zach Gallen, who they flipped and turned into Jack Chisholm. So it's like, that trade is great. The other three trades all look terrible at, the, at this time. And it, I think, so they traded all three of those outfielders in the exact same offseason, I think that's right. Since that winter, I can't. yeah, since that winter, they have the lowest outfield OPS in baseball, which is, again, not Kim Eng's fault. She wasn't there, but that it has put them in a pretty deep hole, I think is the problem. So I guess my point here is, sure, trade Pablo Lopez. I just, I don't know that it's going to make much of a difference because I just, I don't think he's going to bring... You know, tri- there was a rumor they wanted Tristan Casas from the Red Sox. I don't think the Red Sox would do that trade one for one. 
I, I would do it in a heartbeat if I was Miami. I just don't think the Red Sox would do it. And I guess you need two to tango. We'll take a break. We'll come back and finish up on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We're going to look ahead to some of the most interesting 2023 team war predictions. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We want to look ahead at the 2023 team war projections, because while the rosters of the teams are certainly not set in stone, a lot of the major moves have already happened. The big name free agents are all done. Maybe there's a couple of trades or two we don't know about yet, but I don't think anybody's roster is going to seriously meaningfully change. And so it's interesting to just look ahead and say, okay, well, what do the numbers say? What does is, what is wins above replacement say? If you were to go to Fangrass right now, there's a three-way tie at the top. I don't think any of these are super surprising. The Yankees, the Mets, and the Padres are considered to be essentially tied uh, for the most talented rosters in baseball. I don't have a big issue with any of those things. The Braves are just a touch behind that. The Tampa Bay Rays are tied with the Braves for fourth. That one was stunning to me. I want to get into the Rays in a second. Uh, And then after that, you know, Blue Jays, Astros, Dodgers, Cardinals, none of this is super surprising to me. The Rays are fifth, which was stunning. Uh, They have the sixth best position player projections, the seventh best pitching projections. And I think what's happening here, uh, obviously they've got a lot of depth, a lot of guys you've never heard of or considered two war players. The projections are betting really big on a Wander Franco rebound, a five war player, and Tyler Glasnow being healthy enough to give them three war. I don't think the Glasnow one is unreasonable. He came back at the end of last season, um, should have a normal healthy off season here. So I I don't think that one is that big a deal. But the Wander Franco one did sort of make me think, because he had all of this hype and didn't really have a great year last year and he got hurt, it sort of feels like people have forgotten about him, I think. He's only going to be 22 years old, and his terrible year was 15% above average and a four wins above replacement pace. It's almost like we've forgotten that he's not 22 yet, and he had a 43-game on-base streak in his rookie year last year. He was hurt, had hand surgery, a strained quad. I don't know if I'm in on five war, but I do think it's a really interesting point to be like, this guy's not a bust. Don't forget about him. Like he could easily have a monster season this year. He was probably the player I was most excited to watch going into last year. It was a bit of a bummer, um, him being dinged up and not really playing all that well. But as you said, he was still reasonably good when he played. And I'm really excited to see what he brings to the table this year. The other player that I think was like, sneaky awesome for the Rays last year, the projections also really like, based off really one great year, is our old friend Yandy Diaz, right? Like, he was a four-war player last year, which was really by far the best. He'd never topped two-war before that, and the projections are buying into it. And if you go on Fangraphs on his player page, they have basically projected as a four-war player again um, for for 2023. And that's just like the Rays way, right? They have, they consistently are producing these players. These sort of like, you look up, you're like, oh, wow, that guy's really, you know, going. I feel like this all began with like Ben Zobrist when something was like, oh, well, actually this guy is one of the best players in baseball, you know? And it's like this, this continues year in, year in and year out. The Glasnow thing's interesting um, because again, he's, before he got hurt, it was like, this guy is becoming, is he one of the top, you know, 10, top five pitchers in baseball kind of thing. And if we, if he can be fully healthy this year, the Rays may have just sort of like added that guy back into the mix for a full, for a full season. So um, I was definitely a little surprised to see them this high, but now I can I find myself talking talking myself into it. I, I, I do think they needed to add another bat this winter, and maybe they still will. They, their offense probably needed a little bit of a boost. I think it's taken us a while to maybe change our opinions of the type of player Yandy Diaz ought to be, because you look at him, you say, okay, he's like an exo-velocity king. He crushes the ball. He's got absolutely massive biceps. He looks like he could be a professional bodybuilder, but he hits the ball on the ground. He doesn't actually hit for that much power. What he's great at is not chasing. He gets on base. He doesn't strike out. Four seasons as a Ray, he's got a 127 weighted runs created plus. Now, I will tell you this, Matt. Every year around this time, I go to MLB Network and we do the top 10 shows, right? The top 10 players at each position right now. Yandy D has made my third base list at number 10 above Cabrian Hayes, 
just because Cabrini hasn't hit that much. I, I feel like maybe I'm a little too high on him. I had Wander Franco as my number five shortstop. That's that's how in I am on Franco being good this year. And I think people are going to be like, well, above Bo Bichette, above Willie Adamas, above Dansby Swanson, Jeremy. Yes, I, I'm in on that. I... I think this number is going to come down a little bit. So I think right now it's just steamer numbers. I think they'll mix it with zips numbers when those are done. Um, but it's it kind of makes me think maybe we should be paying attention to the Rays maybe more than we have been, I guess, is the takeaway. Now, I think that's an interesting segue here because if you look at the leagues, the two leagues I think are pretty top heavy, right? There's six playoff spots in each league. Um, one thing that both leagues have in, in common is that the centrals are very weak. So you look at it as somebody will win the central and then the five other teams are going to come from the two coasts from the East and the West. And if you look at the American league, it's interesting because they're higher on the raise than I might otherwise have been, but the top five teams, as far as uh, 2023 war projections in the American league, Yankees, Rays, Blue Jays, Astros, Guardians. Now to me, the Mariners are the pretty obvious exception from there. And that sort of puts the White Sox, the Rangers, the Angels, the Twins, the Red Sox, the Orioles all out of the playoffs. How how top heavy is the American League in your opinion? Like where are you drawing this line? Um I think that's a really really good question because actually I mean I'm pretty confident in the I'm pretty confident in the Astros staying steady and good and you know I think that the the addition of Rodon for the Yankees I think that that should really keep their floor pretty high. But after that, I've got questions about all these teams. And I mean, what's interesting to me, frankly, is that like you draw the line at five, but then there's five other teams that project at least 40 war. And that doesn't even include the Red Sox or the Orioles, who are at 36. So I actually think the AL is pretty, pretty interesting. There's like a lot of teams there. I could see some like some real movement in that in that, you know, we're looking at basically 12 teams. There are 12 teams here where it would not surprise me if they made the playoffs. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I actually, I think it's a little more stratified in the stratified in the National League, right? So the, the top yeah. five teams there: Mets, Padres, Braves, Dodgers, Cardinals. Now, I think most people would say, "What about the Phillies? Phillies just went to the World Series and they added Trey Turner." Fair enough. They also are going to lose Bryce Harper for half the season, right? But I, I'm trying to figure out if you were to take a poll of let's say 100 baseball fans and say, "Pick the six National League playoff teams," how many of them would just say Mets, Padres, Braves? Dodgers, Cardinals, Phillies. Can you see a case for the Brewers, the Giants, Marlins, Pirates? I mean, the bottom of the NL is grim. Diamondbacks, I guess. Uh, this, to me, seems like a pretty clear top six and everyone else. For sure. I think of that next group, the team that interests me most actually might be the Diamondbacks. And this might just be sort of just like being kind of bored of the same teams and wanting some new, <laughs> sort, of be, sort of like projecting my desire for new blood. But, like, it's a young, athletic, interesting team. They have, like, a true ace in Zach Gallen. It's just like, okay, like, this is, this is a, this is like, there's an opportunity. I think that, I guess more than anything, it's there's an opportunity. Like, I look at that roster. Yeah, I'll still take the Brewers roster over theirs because they have that, the high-end pitching. As long as those guys are healthy, I'll take the Brewers over the D-backs. But, like, with those young outfielders, you can see a path to, like, the D-backs being a pretty spunky team that contends for for a wild card, wild card spot, you know. Even though they're projected right now here below the the Pirates and Cubs, I'd put them the Pirates, Marlins, and Cubs. I'd put them over the Marlins and Pirates, maybe even the Cubs. The Cubs are probably going to end up being better than than we think for some of these reasons, just because like there aren't that many good teams and they're just better. They're better than a lot of these teams. But they may not be good, but they're better than half the NL, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the so bottom of the NL. Being like, it's a little What's rougher. Up? Yeah, no, I'm with you. The bottom, yeah. the bottom of the NL is a little rougher. So I think that like the Cubs and the D-backs, there's a credible case to see them kind of being in that that conversation. There's also the chance that basically the six teams are you know five to eight games above everyone else, and we don't really have much of a much of a wild card race this year. Matt, I enjoyed my holiday break, but I enjoy coming back and talking to you about baseball even more. So looking forward to getting the 2023 season moving. Spring training is not that far away. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.